Hi, this is Skip Stewart. This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast, and I'm the Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a General Surgeon and Chief Medical Officer here at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto. And hi, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System. Well, today we are so excited and so honored to have Dr. Frederick Southwick with us. Dr. Southwick, welcome. And would you briefly tell us a little bit about yourself, where do you work at, and some of your background? Yes, I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Florida, and I was the chief of infectious diseases for 20 years. And after that, I decided to change my career to quality and safety improvement. And I've been the chief quality officer for our hospitals division for the last three years. And uh, during this pandemic, I have focused on uh, trying to get clear and accurate scientifically based information about COVID-19 out to the out to the uh, physician, the healthcare uh, community. And I have a course on Coursera called uh, COVID-19 and clinical update, which now has over 18,000 students on it. And so I think I've been able to spread the truth as opposed to the tremendous amount of fiction that we've been encountering. Absolutely. Uh, once again, Dr. Southwick, we are, we're so glad that you're here. And, and when we have physicians on the show, we like to hear about your background and how you got into quality improvement. And I know you have a, you have a, a very personal story uh, when it comes to um, quality in healthcare, and and if you don't mind, share share with us a little bit that that story with us. Sure. Uh, well, I actually have two stories, if you can believe it. I've had uh, a double bad luck in that uh, back in the nineteen late nineteen eighties, my wife had a very strange, which turned out to be a penicillin induced vasculitis, and presented with a nerve pain to her foot. And uh, the physicians didn't take it seriously. I couldn't get anybody to pay attention to her problem. And she ended up in the MI and medical intensive care unit on a respirator with oxygen levels of PO2s of 50 uh, and in shock with ARDS uh, because of the delays in care. And uh, fortunately, someone finally decided to give her high dose uh, prednisone and that reversed all of her all of the problems from uh, this really severe allergic reaction, and uh, she actually uh, completely recovered. So uh, that was back before we knew much about quality and safety. We were just starting to air as human hadn't even come out. That was 2000. So I wrote an article in the Annals of Internal Medicine called "Who's Caring for Mary." I really. Um, I was pretty angry commentary on the doctors weren't paying attention and they were distracted and they needed to work harder. Well, then I became introduced to Steve Spears work on Toyota production system and how that could be applied to healthcare and realized that actually the systems in which those doctors were working in were woefully deficient. And it was very clear that it was almost impossible to integrate care with the system that was present at that time. And so I went from blaming doctors to blaming the systems and working on our systems improvement. And from there, I've really worked hard on learning lean and taking courses at Virginia Mason and started working in quality and safety. And 
I actually wrote a book in 2000, published in 2012, called uh, Critically Ill, a Five-Point Plan to Cure Healthcare Delivery, which really outlines uh, a lot of information about Toyota production system, about uh, leadership, about human error, and how to address it, and, and also how to bring about change in our health system, our healthcare system, because one of the big reasons we aren't getting better, or we're very slow to get better, is many physicians and all healthcare workers and people in general tend to be resistant to change. And so overcoming change, I've realized, is very important. Well, at the time my book came out in 2012, I all of a sudden noticed severe pain in my left calf. And I thought it was a calf pull, but I subsequently uh, realized that it was actually loss of blood supply to my left, uh, left leg and my foot turned white. And I went to the vascular surgeons who did an angiogram and found that I had no vessels uh, that were patent below my uh, left knee. And there was no way to bypass. And as a consequence, I had to have an above the knee amputation. Well, uh, that above the knee amputation, uh, when I look back, I asked myself, what happened to my left leg that didn't happen to my, that had my left leg and not my right leg, which was normal. And all my other vascular supply was normal. My heart was normal. I work out uh, very intensely. A lot. I'm a rower, master's rower, and I had no problems with diabetes and the normal low cholesterol. So it didn't make sense. It had to be something physical. And in retrospect, uh, I realized that I had had an Achilles tendon repair in 1995. And the physician had mentioned that it took a long time. An average Achilles tendon repair takes 15 minutes. And mine took two hours. Well, I went back and got the operative report and realized that they had left the tourniquet above my left knee for over two hours. And that that plus possibly the way they did the surgery had actually destroyed two out of three arteries in my leg. And I was actually living off my posterior popliteal artery for from 1995 to 2012. And then that slowed down and occluded. And that's what resulted in loss of my limb. So that was a surgical error uh, that is, and I suffered above the knee amputation because of a surgical error. So needless to say, I, I understand the consequences of medical errors. Wow. Well, I mean, that, that's quite a story. And, and I know that, that in 2009, you and, you and uh, Stephen Spear, you came out with, with another article called Who, Who Was Caring for Mary Re- Revisited. And, and tell me. Exactly, yes. Tell me, you said, you said that you went from blaming you know, individuals to, to blaming the system. Uh, how did, you know, how did you come to that conclusion? Um, well, really what, what, uh, Steve did with me, it was really a very uh, therapeutic actually. Uh, um, Steve and I went through the case and, and we, this is the way we looked at it. What happened, what should have happened and, uh, what you do to prevent that and to have facilitated the right thing happening. And when we went through all the different, uh, you know, each step, there were actually eight steps in Mary's illness. And uh, each of the, except for the final step where the, the MICU, the intensive care physicians finally came up with the right diagnosis and saved her, um, there had been missteps as a consequence of systems. 
it started out with um, a neurologist and he was, he worked as a, in a small clinic where he was the only doctor and he managed uh, uh, peripheral nerve injuries. And so he did EMGs and then uh, managed these patients, but he often had to go away to conferences. And so we saw him, he uh, noticed that the, uh, for Mary, he noticed that uh, the nerve conduction of two major nerves in her, in her leg were uh, abnormal, had been damaged. And he thought it was due to a physical injury because she did aerobic dance. However, the MRI showed no, uh, no swelling, no evidence of injury, and she didn't have any injury. But at the time, he was very busy running that clinic on his own. He refused to do, or he really didn't have time. When I asked him, he, he said, we didn't need any other studies. And so he didn't do any studies. And she, and then he went off to a conference and I, he wouldn't, I couldn't get a hold of him again. So then I went to an internist. The internist uh, saw Mary. And at that time, because she wasn't moving her leg, it had begun to swell. And I was highly suspicious she had thrombophobitis. Well, she, and, and the internist did, a, at that time, they did venograms. It showed, indeed, she did have uh, femoral, artery, uh, femoral vein thrombosis and, and thrombophilitis, and she needed admission. However, that physician uh, didn't have any cross cover, and she had to go pick up her children. So she uh, had headed off married to another doctor. And so we lost continuity between the neurologist, the internist, and the admitting physician. And then we had a, a rotating intern on the first month of medicine uh, who knew nothing in internal medicine who was managing her. And there was a lack of teamwork and that the senior resident was not supervising the intern. And the intern was trying to manage the, her heparin and uh, underdosed her heparin. And then Mary suffered a pulmonary embolus as a consequence of uh, inadequate uh, uh, dosing of the heparin. And the nurses were fearful. Of, they had noticed that her PTT was not therapeutic, but were afraid to tell the team because of the failure or the really rigid rules between doctors and nurses at that time. Nurses were afraid to talk to doctors for fear they'd get in trouble. And so that was uh, the next big problem. And then the, the uh, intending on the service, he had, was multitasking and he had a lot of academic uh, um, tasks and didn't devote uh, sufficient time. And also there was very poor communication and a lack of teamwork between the attending and the residents. And the residents really didn't tell the attending what was going on for fear that he would get upset. And so the attending really didn't know that until the very end, or at, at the time she got the pulmonary embolus, that she had had insufficient uh, heparin. And then uh, Mary from there uh, got uh, developed a more severe, uh, she actually developed chest pain and actually had a myocardial infarct. And at that point, we I shifted her care to a cardiologist who was full-time clinical and not part-time and doing academics at the same time. He was the one that said, we are, this needs to be a multi-systemic disease. And the other thing I didn't mention, her eosinophil count was up to 17,000 at one point, and no one had done anything about it. In retrospect, she had been given, I had given her penicillin for a strep throat, and uh, she had gotten a severe 
eosinophilic reaction to the penicillin, and what she needed was uh, was steroids. Well, the cardiologist said, "I want to start steroids. We're going to put her in the uh, in the CCU." And uh, when she went to the CCU, she uh, became increasingly hypoxic to the point she had a PO2 of 50 and developed uh, ARDS, had to be intubated. And once she was intubated with 15 uh, millimeters of PEEP, her PO2 with 100% FiO2 was only 50. So she had uh, a severe, severe hypoxia. She also developed shock requiring three vasopressors and developed renal failure with uh, aneuric renal failure all at once. And so there she was with no urine output, severely hypoxic, and, and as far as I could tell, I had never seen anybody survive. But they had given the prednisone, and about 36 hours later, after two asystolic cardiac arrests, um, she actually reversed and diuresed all the fluid, and her lungs reversed. And in retrospect, an immunologist finally saw her and realized that she had had a penicillin-induced eosinophilic vasculitis. Wow. So that, uh, you, that's you talk the story. about the Swiss and cheese went, lining up. Yes, exactly, exactly. All, there was poor teamwork. There was lack of leadership. There was lack of coordination. Uh, there, it, there was no electronic records at that time. So yeah. the, the fact the intern didn't write down the values, the attending couldn't find out. So... Uh, you know, originally I blamed the attending, but if I was in his, well, I probably would have asked more and been a little more, but I wouldn't have been as distracted as he was. But the systems were really leading to all these things. And, and so you mentioned that that took place in the in the 90s and a lot has changed since then. You mentioned or she yeah. has come out since then. Uh, but at the same time, we recognize a lot of those same problems that you brought up are still present in our system. Uh, and, and one day we'll we'll have to explain to H.F. Mason what an eosinophil is. He, well, he, I, he, <laughs> I was going to ask, is, is, is an eosinophil count of 17,000? I assume that's high. Yes. Unheard of. Unheard of. Normally it'd be 100. 100. No, I, uh, at the most you would ever I, I'm have. I'm just kidding. It, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah. No, no but in all, in all seriousness... Uh, you know, what can you tell us, you know, in, in, in the field of quality and continuous improvement has changed in, in your mind? What, what have we started doing better since that time? What are we getting right now? And what do we still need to work on? Well, I, I think we are accepting that we need to change things. And, and I found I'm working with our hospitalists. They increasingly over the last three or four years are really embracing plan, do, study, act cycles. So they see a problem and they start doing, they naturally now start doing PDSA cycles and trying to create permanent fixes in a way they never did before. And uh, so that's very good. The other thing that the biggest, I think the biggest problem, and, and I think it's getting better, is resistance to change. I always did it this way. I don't want to change. But uh, slowly we've worked very hard and we actually have a paper, we worked with a psychologist who actually worked uh, worked with a company that implemented Toyota production system in different uh, manufacturing. And she moved, uh, came to UF in psychology. And she, she, or she was in charge of getting those who would resist change to convert. And uh, what we had to do is we, we had to, they had to be observed very closely. And we actually scored them, how, how faithful they were following uh, this was a rounding procedure that we had with a checklist and and re- requiring interaction every day with the nurses during rounds. And initially, I can tell you, 
the the uh, the, the hospitals felt this was going to waste their time. In retrospect, it did not. In fact, the rounds were slightly shorter, but the nurse was always involved. And uh, the nurses then, because they knew what was going on, could help them. Anyway, so we had graduate students observe and actually give them feedback on, on their uh, accuracy of their performing uh, the, the protocol. And then the other thing we did is we would huddle every week and talk to the uh, and ask the nurses what went well and the doctors what went well and what could be improved. And what that did is that was uh, the nurses rewarded the physicians for doing this procedure, this using this method of communicating with nurses and expressed their gratitude for being able to understand what was going on with the patients. And similarly, the uh, doctors thanked the nurses for not paging them all the time anymore. So um, we found that the use of huddles and continuous communication and encouraging uh, a, a really creative approach with plan, do, study, act cycles, we can do a lot better. The, the problem I see is the, you know, there are little pockets of excellence, but there are areas of resistance and dysfunction. And until an entire system is integrated and everybody is working in the same way, I, I can't see how we can really get a lot better. And I think Virginia Mason is, is the role model in this way. Uh, but it's been very, very difficult in most health centers because people are coming and going and because uh, they're, they don't really necessarily answer to one master. It's very, very hard to get the same message to everyone at the same time and get buy-in. And you need really buy-in from everybody. And that's why I actually um, have used campaign methods to really encourage. So we, what we do is we use personal narrative a lot. So we'll take patients that may have uh, suffered delays or, or injuries, and we'll use those to explain why we need to change. And that usually touches the hearts so that the people change their minds and they're a little more open to change. And then uh, we actually create a, a team, a leadership team, which then plans out how we're going to improve something. So it's not the any boss. It's actually members of the team that do this and come up with a plan. And then we, we continually follow uh, the performance measures uh, to, to give them feedback as to their performance. And by doing all those things, I think we can bring about those changes, but it really has to be throughout the system. Fred, I was, you know, I read a little, a few pages of your book, Critically Ill, and, and I like the way you, you use the analogy of it being like the, uh, the Boy, Boy Scout field book. And, and, you know, I, I, I was a Boy Scout and I, re, I remember looking through right. the looking through the book. If you wanted to learn how to tie a square knot or a, or two half hitches or how to put on a splint, you know, it was right there with you. And and it almost sounds like th this book is it's geared for anyone, but but maybe even perhaps geared for for medical students. And I, I have a, my, my oldest son is a third year medical student now and. You know, you talk about systemic change. D does there need to be a change in the way we are training, training our doctors in, in medical school and residency? Because, you know, I, I graduated medical school 
30 years ago, but, but we didn't get anything like this, you know, and, and in my surgery right. training, I was taught, okay, you're the surgeon in the room. You're the captain of the ship. You know, everything right. falls on, falls on you. Yeah, hierarchy is a disaster. We hate exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, well, you know, there, the AMA actually, uh, uh, invested quite a bit of money and funded a lot of medical schools to create a health system science curriculum. And what they're saying is, you know, we have right now, we have the um, basic sciences and the clinical sciences. We also need health system science as a, the third wheel, a third leg of the stool to really uh, be effective as physicians today. And uh, it's slowly, we're slowly getting there in our medical school. I have a fourth year uh, course which actually uh, covers the book is the textbook for that course. And I've done flip classroom. I actually have um, the content of that book is actually another course on Coursera called uh, fixing healthcare 1.0. And uh, the, it's really has videos that describe each element of the, each chapter is actually in a set of four 10 minute videos. And then we have, I have interactive questions. And then what I do with the medical students is they watch those videos, they read that chapter related to the videos, and then I have a series of guiding questions uh, that I, I use with them. And so they watch all that. Then we meet together and I ask these guiding questions and they, what, they, what I like them to do, and they do very well in the fourth year, is they personalize. They, have a, they tell me about your experience related to this problem. And each of them does have experiences and I think it really helps uh, for the material to sink in and for them to understand the implications and the importance of these lessons. One of the problems I find when you do quality and safety, when you describe it in the first and second year, they haven't been on the wards. They have no idea. It doesn't have personal meaning to them. And so what happens is they'll, they'll pass the test, but they forget it within uh, 24 hours. So until they've really seen patients and they can they can describe patients. Oh yeah, I saw a patient that had this problem. Oh yes, and and this system didn't work. What I what I tell the medical students is uh, when uh, the first uh, the introductory, I say I, I point out you are going to be like Superman. You are going to have X-ray vision. You are going to see things that other people don't see because you will understand the dysfunctions. And I always emphasize the, the mnemonic steep, safe, timely, effective, efficient, equitable, and patient-centered. And what I tell them is I say, when you go on the wards, run through that mnemonic every day, and you will find things that are missing in that mnemonic each day. And you, if you can, find things that you can improve or suggest improvements for. But I think that, that after the third year, that's when you really want to uh, drive home or after they've at least done one or two ward uh, months, that's when you can really teach this material and it really does have meaning. The, the important thing is also, you, as, as I do in the book and I do in the course, I have even more cases, you really need cases. You need examples that, and that really gets them upset when they hear these terrible cases and these, these lost lives and these injuries. Uh, then they really understand the implications. The only concern I've, I've gotten a little away from this is because it becomes so grim and so bleak 
that they get a little depressed and then they get frightened. And we don't want that. So one of the things I talk about, I actually took a course recently uh, by Pete Carroll, who's the, uh, who's the uh, head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. And he talks about uh, co- uh, uh, competition and how to, how to be really a, a, a effective and efficient competitor. And what he talks about, they talk about you have to have a certain psychology. You have to be in the zone. You have to be a little bit anxious, but not too anxious. And you have to really enjoy what you're doing. And what I do when I'm on the wards is I try to make it really fun. And I try to point out all the positives. And I don't. I'm very careful not to be uh, critical. And I always point out what people are doing well. And then just encourage them to improve things. But you really need to be very, very positive because... Uh, being on the wards is very, very stressful. And if you if you're pointing out what they're doing wrong, uh, then then everybody will choke up and, and it really doesn't work and they won't enjoy what they're doing. Uh, that's a good point. Is this same course, uh, you know, similar to the paper that you recently wrote about teaching novice clinicians how to reduce diagnostic waste and errors by using the Toyota that's production part of system? The course, yes. Okay. Yes, that was part. That was just one element of the course. That's actually is in module two. You know, I have eight modules, um, and uh, the first module is is really uh, an introduction to the concepts of, of systems and quality. The second uh, module is all about Toyota production system and using value streams. And the third uh, module is teamwork uh, and how to work effectively in teams. The, the fourth module and fifth module are how to overcome human errors which is what most safety and quality courses mainly focus on. And those are very important. And uh, also about how to measure uh, quality improvement using run charts, I think it's very, very important. And understanding random from very, uh, random change from specific cause change, uh, because that's very difficult to differentiate sometimes if you don't use run charts. And then, uh, then the next module, Module six is about leadership and leading change. I think we all need to be adaptive leaders. We need to learn how to bring about change. And I got myself in big trouble in 2009 when I tried to create a rounding system where the attendings weren't allowed to uh, uh, give long soliloquies anymore (laughs) and run rounds on for five hours. And I was very, very unpopular. But I can tell you today at UF, no one goes over two hours on work rounds. It just doesn't happen. Not very popular with the uh, uh, attendings, but very popular with the residents, I would imagine. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and then, then the final module is organize the people to bring about change. So campaign methods for bringing about the change so that everybody uh, gets on board. So those, those are the approaches that I, I've really used. To, to. And then what I do at the end, they each have to create a quality improvement uh, campaign, something that they would like to change. And they do that in the fourth year. And then I hope, I don't think too many have done it, but I'm hoping they will use those templates for their internship quality and residency quality improvement project. But uh, what I found is the residency programs really do a, a, a pretty lukewarm job of these quality improvement projects. There's so much going on that then people just don't have time. And so they sort of go through the motions, but I haven't seen that many, you know, big projects that have come to completion or really been significantly worked on. I don't know about your 
your your systems, whether you've seen the, the residents do uh, significant quality improvements. Well, Dr. Southwick, wow, you are a wealth of knowledge, and uh, I can't believe that we've already went through the whole podcast. Uh, you are just uh, really insightful, and it's really great to hear your experience around uh, systemic thinking, around performance improvement, around quality at the source, and just uh, your passion is contagious. And just on, on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, Dr. Southwick, I just want to say thank you so much and uh, for coming on the podcast and just encourage you to keep on doing uh, the great work you're doing. I know that the folks at the Toyota Mississippi facility praised your name and really spoke so highly of you. So I just want to, on behalf of Baptist, say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed uh as my wife will tell you, this is my passion, and I never stop talking about it, as you could tell. <laughs> but well, thank you great. very much. I enjoyed that's it. That's great. Th- thank thanks, you so much. Lot, we Fred. really appreciate you. Thank okay, you. great. Good to talk to you. You too.